Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodiverse individuals. Every episode, we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game, and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience. We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey. I'm Joey, and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed chin-up. And I'm Jeremy. I'm a neurodiverse software developer turned startup founder, building habit and focus software for people with ADHD. My cool party trick is leaving parties early, so I get to sleep on time to do my three-hour-long morning routine. The Focus and Chill podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though. You'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode 18 of the Focus and Chill podcast. We're thrilled to be joined by Michelle Markman today. Michelle is a neurodivergent life coach in Orange County, California. She's a late-diagnosed autistic adult and has faced and overcome many life struggles and dark nights of the soul. She's also a solo world traveler, adventure seeker, has taught herself to drive a manual transmission car, ride motorcycles, solo camp, hike, rock climb, and conquer several high ropes courses. She's led outdoor trips with her university and a group she founded called Outdoor Mamas, a group focused on getting moms and kids outdoors. She studied abroad in Europe and traveled to Africa solo to climb Kilimanjaro, the world's tallest freestanding mountain. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you. I'm such a pleasure to be here. And what a great intro. Yeah, we're really happy to have you on the show. I came to to hear a bit more about the process for your late diagnosis. I was also diagnosed late with autism. So interested to hear about what it was like, how it has impacted your productivity in terms of before you got diagnosed and also what changes you've made as part of the diagnosis process. Yeah, absolutely. So I got my diagnosis at 27. I grew up with a brother who was diagnosed as autistic and ADHD and always identified myself as the neurotypical member of the family or the neurotypical child. Um, So it was quite a surprise when I was 27 in college and got the diagnosis of autism. I honestly did not really believe the diagnosis until I was in my 30s because there's so much stigma around what autism is. And I expected that all autistic people would be like Sheldon Cooper, who's the actor who plays Sheldon Cooper is not even autistic. It's just there's just so much misinformation out there around autism. Um, So. Yeah, it's it's been quite a journey discovering myself and and rediscovering myself through the the frame and lens of autism and really embracing myself for who I am 
And you asked some questions around uh, my productivity before the diagnosis and after. Is that correct? Yeah. And potentially not just productivity, but other aspects of your life that you felt were affected. So, um, I mean, I feel like all aspects of life are affected because it's a neurotype. You know, it's it's not, I don't really see it as a disease or a disorder. I, I see it as a neurotype. So I really see that I believe in the um, the social uh, definition of disability, which is that we are disabled by our culture, by our social environment, by the expectations that are placed upon us. And I really think that we as neurodivergent individuals just have a different neurotype. We have different, you know, skills, different abilities. I mean, look at like object, I'm sorry, um, the ability to identify, you know, pattern recognition, finding something that's different in an organization or a person or some area that needs to be strengthened is so easy for us to pick out as neurodivergent individuals. And that's just an example of the skills that we have that are unique from most neurotypicals. So I really do believe that it's just, it's a neurotype more than anything else. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I love what you were saying about it. It's contextual that we can cope really well in environments that are better suited to our neurotype. Yeah. Have you found that you've been able to shape your your work environment so that it, it better helps you? So working remotely has been a game changer for me. There's so much more control over your workspace, over your schedule, um, you know, how many breaks you get. For me personally, I've found that taking more frequent breaks helps me be more productive. So it's really important to just figure out what the accommodations are that you use and actually use those accommodations, you know, noise canceling headphones, taking more frequent breaks, um, scheduling time in for movement, things like that. Mm, Yeah, all those things really help me as well. And I think the COVID has been a bit of a a game changer because it's now not something that we have to ask for that everyone, it, it doesn't seem weird to work from home. And it, it's yeah. definitely helped me a, a huge amount. Are there other things that that have helped you or things that you've learned about yourself, things that you were potentially doing differently prior to the diagnosis and that you, you've now changed? Definitely. So I think I've changed a bit how I show up in relationships. I do try to be more myself now than I did before. Um, the process of unmasking is a journey. and. I think for many of us, it can take a long time to figure out who you are under the mask. So, you know, I really make a conscious effort to be myself, to show up as who I am, and also to realize my limitations. So if I'm going to be going to a social gathering, I'm going to need the next couple of days to be alone, to take some time for myself, to rest more, because that's going to take a lot of energy from me. Um, I use a lot of timers. I set alarms on my phone. I use the calendar app. There's a lot of tools that I use um, that really help me to have better executive functioning now that I'm aware of the diagnosis. Yep. I can definitely relate to the 
the drainingness of, of social events. And I too use a lot of timers and calendars, things like that. I guess in, in terms of what it was like, because you, you saw it with your with your brother, was it something that are some of the, the things that he does, is any of that similar or is it does it show up quite differently in terms of the neurotype for you versus your brother? Because you were saying that you, you perceived yourself to be more neurotypical in context with him. I think we had a very different expression and we are pretty different people. Um, it's hard to say, I mean, looking back that I I think about it and I used to play with my toys by lining them up in a row. (laughs) So it's like, maybe that was a clue. I don't remember my brother ever doing that ironically enough, Mm. but, um, I do feel like that the way that we showed up as people in the world was a little different. You know, he was so high energy and, um, while I'm high energy as well, I think it was just a different expression. Um, I was very much sort of the good kid. So yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I think it was really more my stigma and my preconceived notions of what autism was that kept me from recognizing, you know, some of the similarities Mm. until later. Yeah. And from what I've heard, that's quite common in in women that it gets picked up less frequently and maybe there's more masking than with with boys at a young age. Yeah. And we're so much more socially motivated, typically females, that I think it can be missed. And it was, you know, for me, I was diagnosed with anxiety and with depression and, you know, misdiagnosed with bipolar before we landed on autism. So it just, it's so common to go through so many different diagnoses before you can figure out what the real root cause is. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Michelle, just to change the um, tack a bit, um, you were talking about uh, working from home being a game changer for you. I'd like to talk a bit more about um, projects that you're concentrating on for work at the moment. So I'm a neurodivergent relationship coach. I work with neurodivergent individuals, mostly who were late diagnosed and who are looking to get back in touch with themselves, rediscover their interests, accept and love themselves, and cultivate a life of meaning and relationships and community. Um, So a couple of projects that I'm working on right now are writing a book. So that's in the works that should take, I'm assuming about a year, I'm just starting out in the process. Um, And also just working on my coaching business and helping the individuals that come to me. Is the book going to be about relationships for people on the spectrum or who are neurodivergent? I think it's going to be a combination of my story and my experiences and how I use those and how I use um, my experiences to help others with relationships and communication. I'd be keen to have a read. It's been a, a rocky journey for me with relationships and lucky that my my wife is very understanding but yeah it'd be I can imagine that helping a lot of people and would be good for me to read as well yeah me too <laughs> yeah thank you how do you plan to approach the book writing process well I mean first I'll write the structure so um the skeleton of the book which will be the different sections and then I'm going to chunk it down and write it section by section. But as I mentioned, it's really just the very beginning. So I have to still figure out what I'm writing about. 
Exactly. And how much I'm going to share because I have quite the journey. Yeah, I could tell even by your bio, your, there was so many things in there and we're really keen to to talk about them. Potentially, maybe we could move into that, actually, some of the adventures you, you've gotten up to, climbing Kilimanjaro and all the outdoor adventures what do you what what's your favorite activity to do in your free time because i imagine there's a bit of a combination of things that you can do week by week and then other things where you go traveling for a longer period what does that look like for yeah. you yeah so i i'm a new toddler mom i have a an almost 2 year old so my adventures have been um dampened a little bit but i still enjoy hiking i take him hiking all the time and yeah, Kilimanjaro was amazing. It was just one of the most incredible journeys that I've been on. Not only the hike itself, but the journey that you take within yourself. Because when you're climbing one of the seven summits, there is an element of risk that goes into it. And there are, you know, a certain number of people that die on the summits every year. So there's a letting go process that has to happen. You know, you have to surrender to the process of the climb, which is a lot like life. You have to surrender to the process of life sometimes for it to be more enjoyable. Um, you can kind of think of yourself as like a surfer on a surfboard. If you are riding the waves on the surfboard, it's going to be a little easier than if you're, you know, if you've fallen off the surfboard and you're getting slammed by the waves. So it's just kind of a different way of looking at life. And it's a little easier to surrender to the process. That being said, surrendering itself can be a challenge, especially for us who are neurodivergent and who like to have control of everything. Yeah, definitely. I, I can, the surfing analogy is a great one because I, I know that when I've done it in the past, I've had anxiety running through my head and then I can't actually get into the flow and just fall off all the time. Whereas when you can relax a bit more, it helps. But yeah, I've I heard about someone who was killed while while climbing Kilimanjaro. So I, I hear what you're saying that there is an element of risk, but probably not helpful to be petrified about that when you're actually doing the climb. That might make it even worse. Is that something that you you're generally pretty good at in terms of being able to to be in the flow and and to surrender in experiences like that? Or is it something that you've taught yourself? I think it's something that I've taught myself and it's something that I've worked on for many, many years. Um, I had a, a very close friend of mine die two months before I climbed the mountain from an unknown heart condition. So I considered not climbing because many of the people who die on the mountain die from heart attacks. So I had to face not only the fear of climbing this mountain where you could potentially die, but climbing it while grieving the loss of a close friend who had died just recently. So it was really, it was a really big opportunity for me to challenge myself, to have faith in the process and to work on surrendering. And, and there was a lot of surrender with every step. And there were certain points of the journey where you know, I had really intense anxiety, but it's important to remember that you can always put one foot in front of the other. And one small step in the right direction is all that it matters. And that's all that it takes. And even if it's one step forward and two steps back, you'll get there eventually. Small steps is like a very common theme that we we tell our clients with um, like 
achieving your goals, it always starts with a with a small step. So uh, speaking of speaking of uh, the first few small steps, can we talk about uh, your morning routine and what that looks like and how it's evolved over over time? Absolutely. So I always like to have a morning routine. My current morning routine is a little different with a toddler, but I do make a consistent effort to wake up in the morning do a gratitude journal, write down what I'm grateful for. If I'm not able to write it down, I at least go through a list of four or five things in my head. And then I will usually do indoor cycling in the morning or a little bit of yoga um, before I have my morning chocolate. I drink hot chocolate instead of coffee these days. Um, And then head off to the office. Yeah, right. So you, even though you you like working from home, you you still... Is that because of the situation with with being a mom and wanting to have space between work and personal life? I actually um, work from my parents' house. I work upstairs. We live um, in a neighboring city in an apartment, but we drive to my parents' house every day so they can take care of my toddler downstairs. And I work upstairs. So I still commute to work. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the commute just being able to have that detachment and the distance. And that sounds like an ideal way to structure it. Yeah, it can be hard to work from home, especially when you're in an apartment and your living room is your office and then you can never leave work. Yeah. My bedroom is my office right now. (laughs) Not optimal. Yeah, relatable. (laughs) Before you became a mother, was your morning routine substantially different? Before I was a mother, I would usually get up quite early, um, four or five, and do yoga for about an hour, do a very intensive yoga routine in the morning. Um, I would still do journaling. I would go for walks or hikes. I think I just had a lot more autonomy before I became a mom, mm. which I'm sure will come back when he gets older. Yeah. That's helpful for me to hear about that because I'm hoping to at some point become a father and I have heard that it can disturb the morning routine a bit. Yeah. Those first, uh, I think probably the first three, four months are are the most challenging and then it, it gets easier, but the, the experience of being a parent and the amount of love that I feel in my heart, I can't even describe it. It's a miracle. It's great to hear. We spoke about uh, optimizing productivity in terms of a, a few things, setting up your environment for success is how we almost uh, summarized it there in terms of working from home and taking breaks and even the commute. What are some other things that you do to, to optimize your productivity? So I have a schedule and I tend to book just about every minute of my day on my schedule. I book in breaks. I book in lunch. I book in exercise. I put everything in writing and sort of check it off my list. Um, Because I find that if I don't do that, I will get hyper-focused and then not take breaks and not take care of myself. Mm. Um. So definitely scheduling and alarms and um, just pre-planning can be really helpful. How do you manage your hyper-focus? Because say if you're working on something and you feel like you're making amazing progress, do you interrupt that and, and take a break proactively? 
So it really depends. I do try to make a conscious effort to do that. But I mean, sometimes you're just in the zone and you can't interrupt a flow state. So when it comes down to self-care, like bathroom breaks and drinking water, then I really will insist that I give myself those times. But sometimes if you're just in the flow and you're being super productive, I think it's okay to kind of push the envelope a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. I tend to be a bit like that as well, but it's a tricky one because you were talking about how going to social events can be draining. And I find sometimes hyper-focus can be draining for me that if I do a really long day where I, I get a lot done, then it feels like it can have a blowback effect the following day. And and then I beat myself mm-hmm. up because I'm not achieving as much. But if I think about over a couple of days, it's probably actually been the average amount of work has been similar. It's just peaks and troughs. Do you find that or have you got into a state where that's pretty consistent for you and you're able to achieve a similar amount of work? I mean, there's certainly ebb and flow to it. Uh, I think that I tend to be pretty consistent with the amount of work that I can get done on a daily basis. Um, But there are certain days when, you know, you just, you got to honor the energy level that you have. And especially as neurodivergent individuals, our energy ebbs and flows. And if you're having a low energy day, you know, give yourself a break and honor that, you know, take a, take a rest break. If you're tired, lay down flat. That can be an amazing reset for your body just to go from being vertical to being horizontal can really just help reset your autonomic nervous system. So there's little tricks that you can try. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I've, um, I I have to tell you that. Hyper fo- I'm not sure if I can call it hyper-focus, but uh, like, for example, last night I was up until 3 a.m. Uh, tinkering around with um, artificial intelligence, AI-generated art. Uh, and so like I, I find that when I take when I have the discipline to take breaks, I'm less likely to have like like have that impact on my sleep as as much. Like I might, I might um, mm-hmm. still go over time a little bit, but like not not as much, but like when you're in the zone and especially something like that, where it's just like, Oh, what's, what did it generate? What did it generate? It's like, it's a bit of a dopamine slot machine, but anyway, sorry, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. Uh, so, um, I'm, I'm interested to know, like in, in terms of managing things like hyper-focus, how do you um, switch off at night? Um, it's yeah. And, and start getting ready for sleep. Yeah, absolutely. So I am really big on structure and routines. Um, While I'm adventurous and I like to try new things and I like to go outside my comfort zone, my my sleep routine and the structure around when I wake up and go to bed is pretty strict because for me to function at an optimal level, I find that I have to get almost nine hours of sleep on a regular basis, which is a little more than is recommended for neurotypicals, but I'm not neurotypical, so that's okay. So for me, it's really important to not only have a morning routine, but also to have a bedtime routine. And what that looks like in my house is we get home in the evening, we might watch a show as a family. I will always, you know, um, have a bath or a shower just to relax, decompress, and then usually have a cup of tea, chamomile, lavender, something like that. Read my book in bed with a nightlight on. I use blackout curtains. I use a sleep mask. I use a noise machine. I use earplugs. I use a lot of things to help me sleep 
but I really am structured around my bedtime routine and my morning routine because your morning routine sets the tone for your day and your bedtime routine sets the tone for the next day. Yeah, the the nine hours of sleep is really interesting. I, I think I'm the same and I've always felt a bit bad about that and compared myself to other people who seem to be able to cope well with, say, seven hours sleep. But I function mm-hmm. so much better. Is that something that you've known for a long time or you've observed over time recently? I think it was more of a, a somewhat recent discovery within the last few years. I was, I think, aware for quite some time that I like to have a longer period of rest or sleep. Um, all growing up in my childhood, my mom used to say that I would go to my room at 7 p.m. and I wouldn't come out till 7 a.m. So having that time to myself, whether I'm asleep or I'm just alone in my own space, has always been really important to me and helps me to, you know, rebalance myself to just recenter, decompress and reconnect with me. Yeah. Same here. Okay. Now we'd like to hear about any resources that you might have to share with other people in terms of books that you, you like reading, philosophies, apps, or potentially sensory toys, anything like that that you find helpful. Yeah. So I'm an avid reader. I read three to five books a month. I really love Neurotribes. I love um, Unmasking Autism. I love reading about positive psychology. So anything by Martin Seligman or Csikszentmihalyi, Mihaly um, Csikszentmihalyi. Um, some of the apps that I use are just the alarm app on my phone. I use the Todoist app which is a a reminder app. Um, I use Trello to schedule my day sometimes. I'm sure there's others, but that's what's coming to me. Hmm. How do you use Trello with scheduling? Is that in terms of blocking things out and you use that in addition to your calendar? Yes. So I put everything on my calendar and then I will break down whatever I put on my calendar on Trello possibly breaking it into parts or putting more detail on Trello. And then I can just move it to the done section, which is a nice little dopamine hit. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Michelle, also um, curious about uh, your experience as a relationship coach, because uh, in a previous decade, I dabbled with that a little bit as well. And uh, so back then uh, we had, we had electricity, but it only just had come on. It was a long time ago. Uh, and so yeah, like back then the the main theme of advice was to um like don't feel like you got to put on an act because like if you connect with someone um and sorry, I assumed when you said relationship coach, I assumed you meant romantic uh relationships. Um and so like when you connect with someone romantically, uh you if if they like an act that you're putting on, it's gonna be exhausting to have to keep up that act. And so they're gonna find out sooner or later. So it's better to just lead with your best self. And so that that would be the theme that 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 we'd have um, back then. I'm just I'm curious about like whether the advice has evolved or anything, or is it still a similar thing that you're telling your clients these days? Could you tell us a bit more about uh, common themes? So I do relationship coaching for everything from intimate relationships and dating to work relationships, friendships, establishing community. When I'm working with couples or people who desire to be coupled. 
I do always encourage that they be as much their authentic self as they can. This is how we get rid of people that are going to come into our lives, hurt us and leave. Because if you can show up authentically as yourself in the first place as much as possible, you're really going to get rid of the people that you don't want to have in your life because they're not meant to be there. And I also encourage, you know, anyone that I'm working with to really figure out what lights them up, what brings them joy, what did they love to do before they even get into a partnership. And it's not always necessary to have a partner that has the same interests, but you have to have a certain rapport with your partner and you have to really be able to be authentically and truly yourself to have that meaningful connection and to have a relationship that's going to energize you and not drain you. Yeah, so much. I, I was just nodding my head to everything you were saying. It's uh, um, first of all, I really love that. Um, um, my assumption was incorrect that I assumed you're a romantic romantic relationship coach, but you do all the all the um, relationships and friendship. Like it's such a under um Jez is probably um giggling to himself because I, I rave about the benefits of of friendship and how it's a uh, underrated um uh, underrated connection in in our society unfortunately um and I'd love to be able be able to help change that um but yeah wonderful wonderful Michelle uh when where can people connect with you or find out more about your work yeah, so you can find me on my website, which is michellemarkman.com. That's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-M-A-R-K-M-A-N.com. I also have a Facebook group. It's called Neurodiversion Relationship slash Social Support Forum. You're welcome to join the Facebook group and, you know, book a call in. We can have a conversation, 30 minutes. I guarantee you, your life will change in that 30 minutes. Just take the time for you. Wonderful. And do you have any final words or asks of our audience? Yeah, I mean, I just want to tell everyone that if you're still on your discovery journey and still figuring out who you are or, you know, you're recently diagnosed or think you may be neurodivergent, that no matter what you're going through right now, that it does get easier and you can step into your personal power and really honor and appreciate the life that you have and the gifts that you have. And there's tools to support any weaknesses or areas that need support. You just have to figure out what they are. Wonderful. And we'll wrap the show with that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Focus and Chill podcast. To listen to other episodes, jump onto podcast.focusbear.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit, email us at team at focusbear.io. Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled, and peace out. <laughs>